good afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 100, 100, 100 of the Fade to Black podcast. I am a mama woman. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Clarice Lockery. On this very special episode of Fade to Black, I follow Cynthia Erivo into London's criminal underbelly as we chat Lufa, the fallen son. Plus, we review the film while we enter the ring with Michael B. Jordan's Creed 3 and turn the camera on the documentary form itself with Camilla Hall and Jennifer Texera's subject. But that's not it! Mandalorian, Mando, Grogu, they're back on our screens. And to mark the occasion, Clarice spoke to series creator John Favreau about what lies ahead for Din and Grogu. And in our hot take, we'll give our full spoilerific thoughts on the first episode of what promises to be a very exciting season three. But for all of that, gonna check in with the crew. How are we feeling about episode 100, people? 100! 100! We're 100 years old. It's been a century. (laughs) (laughs) It's been 84 years. (laughs) I was literally thinking exactly the same. This is why I know we're good on this podcast. I literally went through my mind. We're just so in sync. It's only taken us 99 episodes, but we finally got there. (laughs) Finally get to Titanic reference. (laughs) Good, good stuff. Have we had a good week? Um, leading up to this, and you know, Clarice, you know, I'm not sure how overwhelmed you are about making all that worldwide news with Mando. Um, so, oh my God. <laughs> the funniest thing is people taking it seriously. <laughs> like, guys, it's just a puppet. It's just a puppet. No, they're not going to make a. Sh- they're not going to actually make a show about the puppet. It was a joke. Please <laughs> log off. Log off. <laughs> But yeah, thank you, IGN, for, for picking that up. That was cool. Yes, it's thank cool to you. see. It was and so, I, that made me giggle. <laughs> it did make me cackle in a big way. Um, yeah, and a couple of other sites have since picked it up as well. So yeah, we're getting out there, people. We're getting out there. Uh, Hannah, how's your week been? You making any worldwide news? Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I want to give a shout out because... Um, it's Glasgow Fist Film Festival, which has started. Yes, so it is. So any Scottish uh, listeners or people in the area, uh, make sure you check out some of the stuff that's going on during the programme, which started on Wednesday and I think finishes like on like the 10th or 11th, 12th? Some, on mid-March, the 12th. On the 12th, there we go. <laughs> um, there's a yeah. few films I've seen that already that are on the schedule that are good. Rye Lane, Polite Society, mm-hmm. How to Build a Pipeline, um, Other People's Children, um, and also, I'm going to be there on Wednesday, International Women's Day, to do a panel, hosting a panel on women and animation. So if you're about, come and come on down, say hello, we can talk. I love it because I just love animation so much, especially adult animation. So this is very much a, a panel designed yeah. specifically for me. <laughs> and as we all know, the best Fine. film of 2023 so far is an animated film, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I just, I love that. I love that for you, Hannah. <laughs> I love the executive decision that you made. <laughs> like, sorry, uh, it is. It's just the best film of the year. I <laughs> mean, it's all a opinion, all Wonder Woman's opinions are his own. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I will also be down in Glasgow for the first time. So oh, you Hannah, are if there's going. Any spots, okay. If there's, if there's any spots I should hit up? Let me know. 
Um, but yeah, I'll Listeners, be doing. I've had like, like Amon's been like not, not oh, sure what's going on, go. and I've had so many texts from him <laughs> asking me questions. Yesterday he was like, "How do you get? How long? How long does it take to get to Glasgow on a train?" And I'm like, "I'm not Google." <laughs> Literally, just got, like I'm trying to do work, and I get these. <laughs> it's, I'm not ask Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Look. I was having a bit of a lazy moment and you could have saved me a Google search and just said five hours. That's all I was after. That's I don't know. I, I don't know if it did because I couldn't even remember because I didn't even, you know, it ch- changes all the time depending on what route you go to go mm. through. I'm going through okay. Edinburgh and then getting a change in Edinburgh and go to Glasgow. So, yeah, you just don't know. That sounds long. Um, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be hosting the Q&A for Violaine, uh, which is a film that both Hannah and I have seen. Clint, I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but we both really week. liked it. And oh, we'll okay. have Vivian uh, Oprah on the show uh, yes, in a few we weeks. Will. Very, very exciting. So, yeah, come down and say hi to me as well. You can tell me all about your favorite moments that you've enjoyed from Fade to Black thus far. Uh, we 100 episodes. Wild, wild. Um, but let us get on with episode 100 because we've got a lot to get through. I'm going to start with Lufa, the Fallen Sun. Detective Superintendent Shank. We need to know where he is. Look, I know he's in prison. Except he's not in prison. Of course he's not. You promised me you could help. You know what they did to my son. I need to stop this man. I'm still a copper. Not anymore. Lufa. There's a couple of sort of Lutherisms that come with this franchise. One of them is that. One of them is Watcher. They like to greet each other with, with Watcher. Watcher Luther. Watcher Hannah. Watcher Clarice. Uh, which is also <laughs> in the film. Um, Santa, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Can so, you yeah. hear the bells uh, okay. of Bow Church? Sorry, that was my life. That was Dickensian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I morphed into Fagin there. <laughs> there may or may not be more accent work as we discuss Lupa, the fallen sun. But to set up a little bit, uh, a gruesome serial killer is terrorizing London while brilliant but disgraced detective John Luther sits behind bars. Haunted by his failure to capture the cyber psychopath who now taunts him, Luther decides to break out of prison to finish the job by any means necessary. This is a feature-length continuation of the BBC series Luther, the Fallen Sun. It's directed by Jamie Payne and written by Noel Cross. And it stars Idris Elba, Andy Serkis, Dermo Crowley, who returns as Martin Schenk, and of course, Cynthia Avivo, who I had the pleasure of sitting down with earlier this week to discuss her performance in this film. It's a really, really good performance. She was a really big fan of the show before signing up to this. Uh, so we had a good uh, to talk about that. Um, and yeah, Cynthia, she is so ridiculously talented. She's, of course, been just an Oscar away from an EGOT uh, for a while now. So we talked a little bit about that. We talked about uh, the fact that she's got Wicked coming up, which is the two-part theatrical <gasps> adaptation of the uh, theatre production. Uh, so we talked a little bit about that as well. And uh, I asked the most important question anybody can ask, which is how can I become Michelle Yeoh's best friend? Because Michelle Yeoh is, of course, also in that film. And she's awesome. 
She's winning all the things. She's getting all the flowers. And I love to see that. So enjoy the conversation between me and Cynthia Avivo. Welcome to the Fate Back Podcast, Cynthia Avivo. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good to meet you. Been a big fan for a while, so this is a treat for me. Um, You are one of the stars of Luther, the Fallen Son, or should I say Luther? This is the most important question I'm going to ask you today. How are you pronouncing it? Are you you doing this on set? Is it Luther? Is it Luther? Odette says Luther. Okay. (laughs) John, actually. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Uh, I watched the film. Really liked your character. Before I get into that, yeah, were you a fan of Luther the show before you yes. did the film? Yes, I was. I had watched every single episode. Probably binge watched it again just before I started. Amazing, really amazing. Good. <laughs> that was a pleasure. Was there any particular season or episode that you really liked? I really, I, I, I really liked them. The last season was really cool because it's interesting. It was only a couple of episodes, but mm. they were long, like almost filmic episodes, which I really liked. Liked that, which is because it was different and and you got to see a little bit more of him and you understood where he was coming from and you sort of found out what the relationships were and some things came to an end, some things continued. I don't know. It was just a really interesting season. Yeah, yeah. there was yeah. like there was that one episode where someone was under the bed. I, that petrified the heck out of me yes me too i mean i scare easily easily anyway but that that was a nonsense not under the bed i I, I remember watching it and going i need to go to bed i'm turning it off (laughs) (laughs) looking under the bed like the next month like what is anything oh no (laughs) um so knowing that being such a fan what expectations did you have going into this world of what it would be like and how did the reality meet or subvert those expectations that you may have had? Yeah, I I, I figured it would be sort of gritty and hard-hitting just because of the nature of the, the show. Um, but I think what I didn't take into account was the scope of the places that we would have to go to, to get the the, the scenes mm-hmm. and the spaces that we'd be, be in, even within London. We took over Piccadilly Circus at one point. Mm. Uh, we went to Iceland to shoot as well. So we had, we took up a lot of room and space. So it felt really big. And that's something I didn't necessarily ex- expect. But then you have these really wonderful moments where we ended up shooting in that Green Street Market in Upton Park, which mm. is like right near my mum. And oh. like this is, she came down to visit that day because it was like <laughs> a 10 minute walk from where she was. So there, it, that sort of like the closeness, the intimacy of, of something that feels really, really real. And then like that big scale um, space that you could take up as well in a film like this. It was really cool. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that is awesome. That is awesome. You mentioned one of those spaces that you go into there, Iceland. Yeah. Now, I'm also not a fan of the cold. Me and the cold do not have a good relationship. That <laughs> looked absolutely freezing. And, it and... <laughs> how cold exactly was it? One and two. Luther John is there with his overcoat, and yeah. that is it. There's no gloves. There's no scarf that I can see. I mean, yeah. that's insane to me. Cold. It was very cold. It was yeah. very cold. <laughs> um, we were in the minuses, that's for sure. And I think. We did. We shot a couple of scenes at nighttime, and the wind was blowing. So the worst is when there's a wind chill in that mm. space because it is all freezing air. So it was cold, very, very cold. Jeez. Our feet were wet incessantly. 
Because <laughs> we were in the snow and we were walking through the snow and sometimes the snow would melt and you'd end up walking into water. It just was a lot. Oh, man. A lot. But it was, it was kind of fun. Like, mm. after a while, you're sort of like, okay, we're going to be freezing. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Although you say that, I'm sure when they hit cut, you're like, blanket now. <laughs> yeah, we could go inside immediately. We'd get, try and get yeah. food because we could. But yeah, yeah. We, we were out there for a, a long amount of time. So yeah. yeah. It was... Thank you for your service because it looks great. It looks great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what was it about DCI or that rain that really made you want to play it? Was there anything that you read in that initial character description? Like, oh, yeah, I just, I loved how she spoke to people. I loved how, like the, the color in which she would, like the, the different colors that she would use to to speak to people the sort of like there was no force in claiming power within the room like it's just sort of there um and it, she doesn't have to push too hard and i think that's kind of the nice thing about her it is that she knows she has it and is quite confident in it mm. and um and can rule the room without really needing to do very much but then as you get to know her, this sort of together personality sort of unravels, mm -hmm. and you and you watch as sort of like the grit comes out and the darkness comes out, and she's a bit more fierce and she's a bit more fiery, and now she's a fighter, and it it all sort of becomes untidy for her, which I really loved. I like that you meet mm -hmm. her when she's like very put together, very tidy, pristine, knows right from wrong, and all of that sort of comes apart. That though, There are some scenes where I just, I loved that it all sort of comes apart for her mm -hmm. and how she deals with that. And I was really in, like interested in doing that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It definitely comes through, you got that, the, the, the totality of the person yeah. you get so many different layers to emote which is great um i well it's interesting one of the things with luther that i think is really really cool is that his jacket is almost like superhero armor yes when, right. when he puts it on it's like okay yeah, yeah that, that, that great shot uh where he's looking over the city with his new jacket by the way does he buy that thing in bulk he's just got <laughs> one stash away i, I need to <laughs> maybe <laughs> but I think the story is that that is the same jacket that he always wears. It's the one jacket that he's consistently mm. wearing. But who yeah. knows? <laughs> I think he bought it in bulk and just bought five of those things, six of those things, and he just stores them away from when he needs them. That'd be fantastic. Cynthia, these are the questions I need answers to. I need you to be I'll posing the questions. Answers. Thank I'll, you so much. I will. <laughs> I'll definitely be following up with you on that. Is there an equivalent of that for Odette? Yes, there is. That blue coat that you see her wearing, that blue sort of Burberry-esque like mm. thing that she ties around, that is her mm. cape. That for me was the cape. And we we mm. had a conversation about it. I was like, if Luther, so Luther has his, that gray coat is mm -hmm. his, that, that tweed is his. And I think that Odette, I, I wanted Odette to have something that was like her uniform. Mm. And that, that's that coat that comes with her. When you see her leave the house, it's that coat that goes on. That, blue navy thing that comes on when she's running that blue navy thing is flying behind her and <laughs> it's only when we get to Eisen that we lose it but that coat is the thing that follows her all the way through and that is her sort of superhero cape yeah love it does that coat now hang proudly in a Cynthia Rivo wardrobe a version so... of that coat hangs in uh, okay <laughs> that coat is still firmly with Odette Rain <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough um this is Next question is an interesting one, but I did want to get your take on it because I feel like especially 
with what's been happening in the world over the last few years, there's an yeah. added responsibility that comes with playing a, a black cop yeah. uh, on screen these days. I mean, in some ways, this the thing that I'm concentrating the most on when it comes to Odette is that mm-hmm. there aren't very many, just in general, because we did the research and I mm-hmm. we reached out to a couple of DCI, DCIs, there aren't very many black women DCIs. They Not just surprising. don't really exist at all. There's maybe three or four. Mm-hmm. And in that position specifically, maybe one other. And I think the important thing that we have to reconcile with is that we, because there isn't enough diversity within the police, system we're never going to be able to see people completely as who they are we won't ever really be able to understand the cultures of people we won't ever really be able to understand where people are coming from and people's experience because we just don't have a wide enough range of people doing the work Mm. i think what may one of the reasons i really loved the idea of playing this woman is that and i and i heard this from from the other women who happen to be in the force and also are black, mm. is that there aren't, we don't see that a lot on screen. And to be able to play a black DCI on screen was really important just because mm. I think it's just to see it and to see it played as realistically as we could possibly make it, for me was really special. And I mm. think that the more we see it, because I think, yes, TV can mirror reality, but I think reality sometimes mirrors TV and, and screen and film, mm. the more we see it. And I think the more we do that work, the more we say to the world, this actually can exist. And, mm. it's, not, and it's not out of the ordinary, the more it will start to happen, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I, just, I hope that she's a character that inspires young women who want to be in the force, who look like me to go, I, I, that's a, that might be something I want to do. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. One of the things, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, the the messiness of what that man has to go through because she, over the course of the movie, learns that you can't always do things the right way to to get things done. Is there an actor equivalent of that? Have you ever done a bad thing for a good reason when it comes to acting? Not a bad thing for a good good reason. I, I... I feel like I'm a bit of a rebel. So I, so I think I'm always sort of like searching for, for like the challenge in the pieces that I do. So I'm always, I, I work really hard on everything. And so it's not necessarily doing a bad thing to get some, to, for, to get good results. Mm. It's like, I'm the, I'm the one that does the thing that's different. The rebel who does Mm the odd thing i'm the i'm the one that cuts off all her hair and shaves her eyebrows and wears nails and Mm. i'm that that's who i am and and i try to challenge people to see this as something that is not out of the ordinary but something that's just individual and is also thoroughly acceptable because it's Mm. it is i'm just myself yeah you know i guess you know some people might say that that's bad and it's sort of going against the grain, but I guess I enjoy going against the grain, to be honest. Yeah. And we enjoy the results of you going against the grain. So keep on doing it, please. Um, (laughs) I wonder if we might talk about Andy Serkis for a few minutes, because I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times. He's a lovely man. A very lovely man, which makes 
his character all the more sinister. This but is more and he's yeah. the opposite of the character he's playing. And it is so crazy to see him transform and be that character. And then when you're when the, the scene is done, just the sweetest, nicest, loveliest man. Literally, you answered the question that I didn't even get to ask because I was going to ask how quickly does his demeanor change between action Maybe, and cut? It's just not that character. Yeah. It's so crazy. The thing yeah. is, I think that's 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 often how the best villains are made because mm. the best villains aren't villains at all in their lives. That's why they're great because. Yeah. Actually, they're the nicest people. The people who tend to play villains tend to be the nicest, nicest people. Um, and they tend to, and you need that because it means that you can trust them on, on set. You know that they're not gonna hurt you, that you know that they're not actually gonna do anything horrid to you, that they really are just invested in playing the character. And that's Andy. He's just a yeah. sweetheart. That's it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, I know this was a while back now, but I'm always fascinated when two of a similar type of film are coming out around the same time, uh -huh. which happened with you and Aretha Franklin and Jennifer Hudson uh -huh. a few years ago. What did you make of that scenario at the time? And have you spoken to Jennifer Hudson since then? Is there, is there a WhatsApp group I don't know about? No, I have not spoken to Jennifer Hudson, I, but I oh. do think that, the, that it was a really wonderful opportunity to see this woman portrayed in, in many different ways. We've seen it with other characters. I mean, I don't know how many Marilyn Monroe movies we have. We've had many. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought it was really cool to be giving Aretha a chance to be both on TV and on film. And mm -hmm. I think that that space that she could take up was really special. And I thought, what a way to be able to celebrate this woman's legacy um, that's bring her to the big screen and little screen. I thought yeah. it was kind of awesome. Yeah. 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 Uh, queen. Love her. Um, you're no stranger to theatre. And I know that you got the film coming up, which I'm very excited about. Did you ever see it at the theatre? Wicked. I've seen Wicked uh, yeah. maybe four times at the theatre. Yeah. Mm. I've seen it for sure. Amazing. So when you're playing that character in Wicked on film, are you divorcing that from your mind in order to sort of you know, make your own portrait? Or how 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 much in the forefront of your mind is Wicked the theatre experience as you're crafting your own version of this character? I mean, the the show itself as a whole is definitely on my mind when I'm doing it because we're, mm. music is still that that music. And and the 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 storyline is still that storyline. But I know that I have a duty to create something that isn't necessarily the stage version, that is mm -hmm. the version that is on screen, that people get to love and know and get to know if they haven't met her before, you know, as well. So, yeah. so it is in my mind, but there are so many different versions of this character of, of Alphaba that other women have played that I, I couldn't possibly just pick one to base it off and I, I wouldn't want to. I sort of mm -hmm. love the idea that I get to sort of recreate her on my own um, and take from what Stephen Schwartz and Minnie Holzman have have created and what John is helping to shepherd into the world with me as well and, and to work with Ariana and it's our dynamic. So we, mm. it, I, it wouldn't make any sense to try and do something that has been done already when I'm, I haven't done it with her and mm -hmm. she it helps to inform what this character is just as much as I help to inform what hers is her, our relationship is what makes the the film it what is what makes these two people um special 
-hmm. And that's really what is shifting and helping us make decisions about what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. Um, You're also, of course, working with the great Michelle Yeoh uh, in that film. And I I may have lied to you earlier when I said that the first question I asked was the most important question, because this is the most important question. What is the way that I can become Michelle Yeoh's best friend? I'm I'm such a big fan. Everything I've been all at once is my favorite film of last year. What was it like working with that legend? And again, you know, again, I need need tips. How do I become Michelle Yeoh? I don't know how. I can't give you tips on how to be her best friend. (laughs) I I don't know what what the requirements are. I will ask her. And thank you. There are things that you can do. I'll I'll let you know. (laughs) What I'll tell you is this. That woman is fantastic. Mm. Um, not only is she absolutely brilliant, um, but she's kind and funny and open and generous. And it's been an absolute delight working with her. She can be silly like me. We <laughs> talk about everything and nothing. and All at once. All at once. <laughs> and and she's, she's just wonderful. I, I really really have enjoyed working with her and I'm so glad that I get to keep doing that and I hope I hope that I witness something really wonderful um when those Oscars come around because that is a person who has worked really hard her entire life I just like the things when when you see me doing stunts that is nothing when you see Tom Cruise doing stunts that's nothing compared to the things that she has had to do, the stunts that she has been doing, the work that she's been doing, the physical work, mental, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all with grace and a smile and yeah. light and love. And she's really sweet. She's wonderful. Yeah. She's the best. Yeah. For, for stylish as well. <laughs> very stylish, very cool. I know this. I know yeah. this. Now, for, for all the nonsense that has happened with the Oscars this year, I'm not going to get into the Women King and the Gina Prince. By the way, because it's been very well documented. But it is nice to see both Michelle Yeoh and Angela yeah. Bassett getting their flowers right now because sure. they absolutely they deserve it. Yeah. Um, in prepping for this chat, I was reading a 2021 interview with you where you revealed that this person, just check my notes, Oprah Winfrey, I think that's her name. <laughs> Um, she told you that you were doing all the things and advised you to maybe slow down yeah. a little bit and say no to some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been following her advice? I have. I really have, actually. I have. Um, and it's done me well. Um, I was spreading myself way too thin when I got that message. And now I am really good at seeing when that's happening. I'm really good at saying no when I know I can't and yes when I know I can. Um, and it's a very empowering thing to be able to do and to not be afraid of doing. Because I think sometimes we get really scared of saying no to something for fear that it won't come back around or for fear that we'll miss it completely. Mm. But actually, if it's meant for you, it'll come back. If it's not, then we'll move on. Yeah, I love that. that. Uh, Final question for you. Uh, You've probably thought about this once or twice in recent years, but you are one win away from this thing called an ego. an EGOT? I don't even know. Is it an EGOT? An EGOT? I don't know. But yeah, is that something you sort of think about around this awards time? Or is it just like if it happens? It I would happens. be lying if I say I didn't think about it. Yeah. Every, every other interviewer, it's mentioned. <laughs> every time I'm introduced, it's t- talked about. And mm. I didn't know it existed until I <laughs> went to do 
the uh, the, the show and mm-hmm. most of which is that's where it's from until I went to mm-hmm. do the color purple I didn't know that this was this is a thing and mm-hmm. now I know it's a thing um mm-hmm. so now it's always in sort of like the back of my mind but it mm-hmm. isn't the reason why I do the work I do mm-hmm. um, otherwise there would be no point doing the work you can't mm-hmm. do work to get awards I don't know that that I don't think it works that way mm-hmm. I do work because I love it I do work because I like the characters I'm playing. I do work because I I want to learn something new about both myself and and the people that I'm working with, and and I want to see how far I can be pushed, how far I can go, you know, what my limits are, if there are limits, mm-hmm. and if something comes of that, then wonderful. I'm always really grateful when my work is celebrated, always, and I always will be, um, and it's always going to mean a great deal. Mm. but it isn't the reason yeah 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 you just mentioned the color purple to th- there and you reminded me that you got a couple of links with a couple of Whippy goldberg characters and i'm not sure if you know this but sister act three yeah. is happening you played sister mary clarence in theater you better be making those calls to Whippy to be in that <laughs> film i'm just saying <laughs> i want to see that we'll see <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's a lovely idea though could, could, could be kind of cool who knows that would be amazing. Cynthia, until we meet again so that I can follow up with you on Lufa questions and Michelle Yo questions. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute Thank you pleasure. very much. Nice to meet you again. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Okay. Well, as I say, Cynthia was a big fan of the show before signing on to Luther. Hannah, were you a big fan of the show before watching this film? I have never watched an episode of Luther. Wow. Interesting. I would not have called that for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think um, there's there's a few of those. Maybe I'll get around to it. Like I didn't start watching in the I didn't watch line you know like in the line of duty the line of duty. I didn't watch that when it first yeah. came out. But then I think maybe a couple of years ago I suddenly started binge watching it all because it's on BBC. And I was really like, good. Oh, now I'm into it. <laughs> or like yeah. Happy Valley, I never watched it. But then I binge binge the whole. To be fair, that's because I was interviewing Jake Norton. But no, Luther is not <laughs> something I knew about. But uh, but I don't think that hinders your enjoyment of this film. I agree. If you haven't seen uh, it. Yeah. Clarice, were you, were you a fan? Have you watched any Lufa? Wow. No. I, I, I would never, like, willingly watch a detective show. Really? What, what <laughs> do you have against not... detective shows? Cop shit. I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Mindhunter. I like Mindhunter. But when's that coming out? Really it's Never. not. <laughs> David Fincher just gave a quote recently saying that it's not happening, um, which sucks uh, because I can always do. I mean, one, it's a great show, and two, I could always do it more and the twelves on, on my. Uh, How do I live without you? On my screens, because I'm such a big... (laughs) (laughs) Clarissa, would you like to take a moment to to take this morning? We can give you a few minutes here. No, it's fine. You sure? I I would also agree (laughs) that... I I went back and I watched like a, I sort of put Luther on in the background <laughs> to sort of catch up with what the vibe was. Um, and I also agree that I don't think you need to be overly familiar with the show to to watch the film. It's pretty self contained. Okay, well, given all that, I I had watched many episodes of Luther before watching this film, and yeah, I'm a big fan of the Idris Elba character. Um, I think he's really, really interesting that in that he remains still optimistic about the world, even though he's 
digging in the mud <laughs> a lot in order to get things done. Not always going by the book, shall we say. Um, Clarice, given that you're fairly new to this little world, how what did you make of Idris Elba and the characterization of the title character? So I, look, I know Idris Elba is already in the DC universe and I loved him in the Suicide Squad. I love yeah. Idris Elba. He's very watchable. I just enjoy watching him do stuff. Yeah. He always looks like... He cancelled the, the apocalypse, man! <laughs> he's so good at playing the guy who's like, oh, do I really have to do this? Yeah. All right. <laughs> he nails that character. And um, yeah, I know he's already in the DC universe, but forget about bond i feel like he would be a very good batman because this movie with me coming into it not knowing what luther is i was like this is mm-hmm. very batman-y um there's a very <laughs> sort of uh you know like neo-gothic uh, perpetual rain like quite mm. violent sadistic murders um yeah, the character that andy circus plays is very riddler-esque i would say um yeah. And so I think he, I think Idris Elba, f- like, fits very well into that tone. Like, he's good working with sort of, well, like Pacific Rim, like, sort of heightened genre stuff. Because he's so believable as guy who doesn't want to do shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannah Cruz touched on it a little bit there. A good hero is only as good as a really awful villain. Uh, Andy Circus, who I've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of times, he's a very lovely man. But my gosh, he is convincing as a really sadistic, evil asshat in this. Is yeah. You know what? I will have to also shout out Andy Circus, Iraqi. Yes, my guy. <laughs> we love we love an Arab success story. Um, yeah, you know what? He was very um, kitsch. I'd actually say he was going, like the Batman. He felt like something far more um, of like um, a Tim Burton. <laughs> So if we're gonna keep mm-hmm. on this thing, it feels like he'd be more more fit into a Tim Burton S movie. The wigs, that wig he wears, yeah. <laughs> it's very distracting. It's interesting for me. Actually, one thing I will say, I really like the character. I do think my, my my I think one of the weaknesses of this film that I really enjoyed and found very entertaining. I mm. I think the motivations were a bit um, I the you know he was a. He was very interesting. I really believe the character, but the motivations for why he's doing what he was doing, um, I was a little bit confused about that. It wasn't the most coherent for me. So, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of veered in, and what I think about, you know, it kind of veered into this, um, like this film kind of reminded me a bit more like the girl with the dragon tattoo sort of elements of it. Because obviously we end up going to like, <laughs> is it like Norway they go to? <laughs> like, Iceland. Iceland, right? No, it's Norway. It's Norway. Oh, it's Norway. It? Okay, I thought. Yeah. I watched okay. it again last night and I was, because I forgot where they went. So I was like, I'm going to listen this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad I did listen then. Um, it didn't stick with me. <laughs> but like that kind of like the character where it's, um, I think it was like the hacking thing, the kind of controlling thing, but also this kind of weird, like, I don't know, it's kind of, rich person the, i don't know i don't want to spoil the ending but it goes into this way it's kind of the eye plays on like shame but the kind of idea of his character may, kind of made me think of like because he's kind of a very wealthy person who's able to use his funds to basically use his extreme wealth to fund his like nefarious <laughs> activities i don't know it had that kind of tone and i think what's interesting is how 
as much as I didn't watch this series, I, you know, by osmosis, I know what it's about, pretty gritty, grounded, police procedural sort of thing. The way this film played out was like, oh, in the same way that like Fast and Furious went from DVD stealers like car hijackers to now espionage. <laughs> and so it yeah. definitely kind of seemed like, oh, what they're doing. And if they continue this journey with the film, because I think they're going to try and make more of them. It seems like they're going to, it seems like it's going into far more espionage territory, especially the trajectory of um, Luther's character. Of course, as we know, pretty early on, he gets sent to jail and he's kind of breaking out. So in order to, you know, he breaks out so he can, uh, you know, solve this crime and catch this serial killer. Um, Mm -hmm. And the way, yeah, the certain things it plays out. Yeah, it's kind of a, a slight mismatch, mismatch of like certain like spy genres but like psychological thrillers like all these things coming together but I think it really worked for me that I found it quite entertaining to sit Mm. through even though some of the bits were a bit kind of cheesy in that kind of like tv movie way yeah yeah it Luther as a franchise as a series has been something that has started off fairly grounded and slowly grown more and more and more and more and more fantastical and I think in putting it onto the big screen they want to amplify it and make it cinematic and do all the things they really veer a lot more into the fantastical nature of this film, or this franchise, rather, especially as it gets to the final act. So not for the spoil. But you mentioned Norway there. Just a quick thing to say. If you're going to go to a really cold place, at least bring a scarf or something. Luther is out there in just his tweed coat. And I, I mean, it looks absolutely freezing. I talked to Cynthia about that a little bit as well. She confirmed that it was like, you know, minus degrees or whatever. It just looked like, wow. Like, at least, Look at, at his peacoat, tell moment. me he's broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is Indeed. broke, actually. <laughs> um, but can I just, just to add on to that thing about, I wanted to add just on like what you're saying about like they've had to make it a bit more fantastical. This, mm-hmm. it makes, I will say, in comparison to, say, Fast and Furious, where it's kind of got so outlandish to the point that it is just, like, not, <laughs> it's, like, so far removed from what it originally intended and, like, now these, like, superhero mm-hmm. kind of stakes. It doesn't feel unnatural, the the kind of evolution of Luther into where he seems to be going. It feels quite realistic. Because, again, it's mm-hmm. not... I don't think he's, this is, as you said, it's got uh, Clarice, like, um, you know, he's very good at doing the grounded gritty and keeping every, keep you firmly down here. It's like, look, this is the real thing. Even though the States are kind of ridiculous and wild, but actually it still feels like, mm. oh, I can imagine this actually happening in the real world rather than you, you, this is not, because it kind of seems to be based on a lot of real things that are going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the dark web, like people kind of like snuff mm-hmm. films, that sorts of things like that. And, playing on a real thing about shame and what we would do to kind of try and cover it up and, you know, our online culture and stuff like that. So, yeah, I do, I do think it's like, it's not, um, it's not an outlandish leap. Okay. Um, let's quickly talk about Cynthia Avivo's character. Uh, I really like what they do with her for the most part because she starts off um, as a woman who you can tell mostly wants to do things by the book, do it the right way. Uh, Luther is somebody uh, who, as we have seen, if you watch the series, likes to take matters into his own hands if he sees that's the only way to solve the crime and to put the bad guy to in prison or whatever. And I feel like that is the journey that 
Cynthia Erivo's detective superintendent is going on. I think uh, Cynthia Erivo's character is very much, I mean, for every Luther-esque hero, you've got to have the counterbalance. And I think mm-hmm. she and um, uh, Ma- Martin Schenk, who I guess was the counterbalance in the TV show of like yeah. the... I mean, they're kind of fulfilling the same role that it's the, yeah, by the books, people who over the course of the movie go, well, I gotta say, I've developed a begrudging respect for your (laughs) wild ways, Luther. (laughs) Like, you just kind of have to have that. And I don't know if the movie, like, really, I mean, Hannah, talking about the shame thing, it's interesting because there's this like inkling that Luther needs to face up to the fact that um, he has really like stepped over the line in really quite ethically, you know, troubling ways. And in 2023, like, do we really want to heroize a guy who's a cop who's just like beating people up? Cause you know, vibes. Um, but that gets into the I, Batman was... vigilante thing. He's less of a he's exactly, a vigilante now. which I remember we talked about this with the Batman, and it's like it's interesting because with the Andy Circus villain character, I was like, "Ooh, are they gonna go there?" And and they start to go there, and then I think the movie realizes that if you enter that territory, Luther can no longer exist, so they just immediately pull back. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that's why, like, it's entertaining, but I think if you look at at Luther and and Cynthia Riva's character and Martin Shank, you know, they are filling these very like sturdy archetypes of how they all interact with each other and it's very familiar. But it works, you know. It's entertaining, it's fun. Yeah. And I and I suppose the thing about it is uh, I mean, I think in a way they kind of get away with that sort of thing because they put him in jail. <laughs> <laughs> like he does go to jail yeah, but then he just breaks out no of he course he does but then like, yeah exactly right. <laughs> no exactly 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 but i think that's the that's the problem i think that's the problem it's kind of like they're saying you have to go over the line to deal with such nefarious like villains but to go back to your thing about cynthia i actually yeah i did like her as a character because again it was like she just she was trying to do everything by the book but then again it's coming to that situation where what do you do when there's personal when you're when you've got personal stakes in the game how do you react yeah. when some you know i mean when you're an outsider being you know in those situations like you're in this constant ethical dilemma um and you know will and again that's what's quite good about like why i quite like the line of duty because they're about like like snuff like sniffing out corrupt police officers that's what's quite really mm. great great about it and it's like as much mm. as you can somewhat empathize with certain the guys who were up for it like Tandy Way Newton uh his character mm. or you know different ways you're like yeah but still guys like we have a justice mm. system for a reason and you can't just use it and that's why I think it's interesting that now with the way they're going with it it seems to me that like Luther's is going to end up in a position where you know he's got a license to kill <laughs> mm. do you know what I mean uh, like it seems like that's the way it's going but Cynthia's mm. great um, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's also just good to have like a character like that in that, that moment and in, 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 sure she's an archetype, but it's also like trying to be like, yeah, no nonsense. I like the fact that it's not kind of, they're not saying all these like ridiculous cliche stuff. I mean, you know, the cliche stuff really is coming from Andy Serkis, but that's because like he's a stupid, maniacal kind of character. <laughs> he's like really going heavy on that. It's like turned up to 11. I'm coming out. <laughs> <laughs> 
What is it about Andy Serkis and creepy songs as villain? He did the same thing in Black Panther (laughs) with this whole mixtape thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also really like, what's the actor who plays, like, um, who plays Luther's best mate, who's the retired police officer? (laughs) Who's, like, the retired DCI they bring back in? Martin Schenk. Yeah, he was great. I loved him. (laughs) Again, this is what I quite like about this film, is that, it's as much as it's tried to it's done the kind of cinematic let's make this a movie you know let's make it like quite high size it's a movie that feels like a movie um yeah. they've they've got the kind of the british uh kind of idiosyncrasies like they kind of just make what i quite enjoy about it just the kind of irony and everyone's just literally having a terrible fucking time just like no <laughs> one's happy in this thing really and it's like yeah, yeah. we're just miserable Let's be miserable together, even when we're winning and life sucks and it's awful. And I was like, yeah, we've not got like the upbeat go-getter of like, we can do it, you know, the kind of chippy rookie. You know what I mean? That sort of thing is like, no, life's fucking awful. Let's all wallow in it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You make me want to rewatch Line of Duty again, Hannah. It's, it's, it's ended now, hasn't it? It's ended. It's for me. There, 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 there's always discussions about uh, bringing bring it back. But um, but yeah, there's, there's, only, there's only one thing I care about, Hannah, and that's... That's Nick and Bent Coppers. That's what, that's what I need to do. Bent Coppers. Anyway, on that note, let's go to our screen, stream, or skip on Lufa, the fallen son, Clarice. I would say stream when it comes on Netflix would be my pick. Which I believe is going to be March 10th, by the way. Yes. Uh, so, so yes. Hannah, should we yeah. wait until then or should they go to the cinema right now? I'd say stream. I think it's a fun movie. It's a great, great, you know, a really entertaining film. And it's not to say don't watch it the screen, but like it's going to be on Netflix. So just watch it on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will also say stream. From one good looking black man to two good looking black men. It's Woo! called Chapter Three. <laughs> so, how long have you known each other? It was like brothers. One day you came back. The past came back too. There may have been a time when Damien had your back. No friends in the industry. But that's not what he's doing now. My brothers been my brothers, man. They no kidding me up that. Before I got locked up, I was the best. You a coward, bro. And a fraud. Try spending half your life in a cell. Watching somebody else live your life. Gonna fly now. Flying high now. This is actually one of the tracks that I recently put in my ongoing one film, TV, or game track a day playlist. Uh, played by, uh, obviously, this is composed rather by Bill Conti. Uh, iconic, iconic theme, uh, Rocky theme. This is, this is what plays when he's running up all those steps doing that training montage, getting buff, getting ready for the Which big final fight. I've done. I've done really? the steps. Yep, I've been to Philadelphia, <laughs> Philadelphia Army. That is gone up the steps. awesome. Wait, why did I think it was Eye of the Tiger? When he does no the steps. No idea. <laughs> Isn't that from Rocky, though? <laughs> that is from the third Rocky. Eye of the Tiger, it's the fill of the fight. Well, there you go, third Rocky, third three. the challenge of our rivals. Oh, what a track. What a I, used play, I used to play in band at school and I used to play bassoon, but it was really boring because all the notes I was like, doo, 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 
do, 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 do. That was it. <laughs> I'm you should have kept up with that. That's all that. <laughs> I you want video footage. I want photos. I need to see this. I got this a grade awesome. two distinction. Distinction at grade two. And then I gave it up for my illustrious no! basketball career. And obviously that worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, Creed 3. Still dominating the boxing world, Adonis Creed is driving this career and family life. When Damien, a childhood friend and former boxing prodigy, resurfaces after serving time in prison, he's eager to prove that he deserves his shot in the ring. The face-off between former friends is more than just a fight. To settle the score, Adonis must put his future on the line to battle Damien, a fighter who has nothing to lose. Michael B. Jordan makes his directorial debut with this film while returning in the role of Adonis Creed in the third installment of the franchise. The film also stars Tessa Thompson, Jonathan Majors, Wood Harris, Florian Mutenu, Mila Kent, and Felicia Rashad. Um, this is interesting. This is the first uh, movie in the Rocky saga, shall we say, to use that uh, word that the Fast and Furious franchise has taken a massive liking to. Uh, <laughs> this is the ninth film, as the first film, which Michael B. Jordan is making that directorial debut, but it's the ninth film in the Rocky saga, and Rocky is not in it at all he's barely mentioned there's only a little tiny hint of his music does the film suffer for that absence or does it not Clarice no I I'm not to be rude to Rocky but I don't really miss him <laughs> <laughs> and I enjoy I like the Rocky movies but I think as as good as Creed is and I thought Creed 2 was like pretty good they are so tied they are so rooted in nostalgia and ideas of legacy and like mm. the past and and yeah all these like other characters from the older franchise and what i liked about this one is that it was also about the past <laughs> like, <laughs> like it felt like the like this movie was genuinely trying to do something different and create its own story and um define like what the creed movies are gonna be and it's interesting because sylvester stallone said that he didn't do this movie because didn't he, he die too dark no did he get cancer he's chilling yeah but he got treatment for it he, he was fighting it um in both creed and creed 2 uh creed 2 ends with that final fight that adonis wins and then Rocky says to him, it's your time. Then Creed mm. 2 ends with him going to see his son. Milo um, Ventimiglia from Exactly. <laughs> that is how, that's the final <laughs> sort of image we okay, see fine. of Rocky <laughs> uh, in the film. So, okay, so yeah, how about you, Hannah? Were, were you missing Sly in this or not? No, I thought he died. I thought he died. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but I also, what I like about it is it what it does is makes room for uh, Felicia Richards um, and that character. And and it really, mm. and it, I like the way that it grabs. What I like about this film is um, is how even with like um, Tessa Thompson's character. Um, mm-hmm. who um, obviously is the Adrian, like the wife, but she's also got, like, there's a storyline about her, about how mm-hmm. she's, what she's losing out about her legacy and her, her career as well, which is which becomes mm-hmm. actually quite, it's not incidental to the storyline, it's actually quite fundamental because it creates this, like, yeah. 
the connection between Dame and this trust and about how letting someone in and just this kind of all sense of like what our purpose and life and this feeling like what you want to do with it and how you want to use your talent and what you feel like you deserve and kind of like what you have to let go and sacrifice and all that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, Felicia Richards, I think that character as well was like, you know, it, it was interesting to see how that manifested and how we learned a little bit more about Adonis, but also it felt again, it didn't, it was, it was, it was significant. Like they weren't just, yeah, it wasn't supplemental characters. It was significant characters who all informed the kind of the character of a journey for Adonis, but it all kind of fed on each other in a really, um, yeah, in, 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 in a way that meant that we didn't need Rocky and it still mm -hmm. functioned as a very good film. Yeah. Uh, Hannah, I'm going to stick with you here and I'm not going to delay the inevitable any longer. It's time to talk about that man once again, Jonathan Majors. This is the year of Jonathan Majors. I have not yet <gasps> seen Diamond the magazine. Dame! <laughs> Anderson! <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he's killing it right now. Obviously, Magazine Dreams, Atman of the Wasp, Quantumania, and now this. And Devotion, although he's a hero in that one, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm loving his, yeah. I'm loving uh, Jonathan Major's uh, villain era. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, that, one of the things I love about this film is that even though you know that Adonis versus Dame is inevitable to a degree because there's a certain formula to these films that this film does adhere to. And even though there is so much tension in each conversation between Adonis and Dame, that brotherhood is also keenly felt at all times. Um, and I really love that. I think the storytelling, the writing is really strong in that regard, but the performances really bring nuance into that as well. Um, what did you make of that, especially when it came to Jonathan Majors and his journey as Dame? Well, I suppose my one big thing I noticed and how much of an improvement uh, this film is on the previous one simply by having um, an adversary who can act. <laughs> um, no shade to the guy who played Drogo. Was it Drogo? What's his name? Dracov? Drago. Drago. Oh, sorry. Drago. Drogo from House of... What is it called? <laughs> Game of Thrones. Draco. Yeah. Dracov or whatever his name is. Anyway. Um, Drago. He, Drago. That's <laughs> Sorry. I honestly do not care about this. I do not care for this character. But he's like in it for like two bits of it. He's like in it like very small in this very small way. But like yeah. he's so wooden and bad at acting that when Jonathan Majors comes in, not only as like a formidable adversary, as a boxer who literally looks the part like and you know, whatever you say, it's one of the greatest boxing movies and the way they shoot it, it's like so well intense but like Jonathan Majors delivers not just the acting but the boxing but the acting like man he's like it just it's it's, it's almost he brings this kind of like um Shakespearean quality to this villain he's like not your kind of campy kind of whatever like or kind of stereotype oh I'm from the hood I went to jail blah blah, blah. like he is he has got all these layers and what I love about Jonathan Majors so much is his ability to shift it's like shift personalities, but also kind of his eyes. He has does this thing with his eyes where it's just this intense sincerity where he could be saying one thing, but it also, but it's like this, like he's like the type of guy where like when he's angry, he cries. 
Do you know what I mean? And I like yeah. that because it's like I can see the emotion. I can feel it in his eyes. It says so much to me because even though and I did it with Kang as well, it's like he's like he's working. He's maniacal in so many ways. But like, I mean, of course, there's a difference between Kang and obviously Dame in this one. Like you feel mm-hmm. the kind of what he's been through and stuff like that. But there's moments in it where it's just like, oh, like you feel it. Like you 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 can understand his pain and his anger and frustration but also can be really fucking scared of him as well. He's a quite, but then also love him. Like he's just, he's got this very bashful quality, but then it's just when it plays on all these different things. And that's why he makes such a brilliant villain because you just don't know where you stand with him. You just, Mm -hmm. there's something like ambiguous, mysterious, because you're never quite sure on who he is behind it or what's the persona. Even though, I mean, it's quite obvious, like just for the sake, the sake of the story, we know like, okay, this has to happen, okay, this has happened, blah, blah, blah. But, like, as much as, it's always, like, you know, as much as you know the way it's going to go, this film, because obviously it's very, you know, it has to go, so it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be, like, I don't know, it's not going to try and, you know, mess with the formula. Like, it's called Creed, not Dame. You know what I mean? Like, but I think it does enough that you're invested in this and you're actually quite scared because you, even though you know kind of it's going to head, you're not quite sure where it might end up. And, mm-hmm. yeah, Jonathan Majors, yeah. man dream <laughs> he's doing the thing right now like adonis versus dame is very much at the heart of this film but there's also adonis versus adonis which is very much in keeping that's creed with the four earlier. actually <laughs> <laughs> there's a clone <laughs> <laughs> hey I'm, I'm there right now where's my ticket um but yeah adonis versus adonis in that he is his own most toughest opponent that's an idea that goes all the way back to creed one where they have that great scene where Rocky is looking at him in the mirror and like, you know, look, look at this guy. I believe that's the hardest opponent in the ring, the hardest opponent in life. Um, and in here, I think one thing that's really great about this film is that it unlocks new depths to Adonis because he's trying to forget about this past, this history that Dame coming back is representing, um, which I think is really, really done well. Clarice, what did you make of Adonis versus Adonis and how that impacted Adonis versus Dame in this film? So hard to be a Nepo baby. (laughs) 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 I do, I do think, like, I will say, I in the other Creed movies, I haven't really found that part of it that interesting. The like, Mm. can I make a name for myself outside of the fact of like Rocky and, and Apollo that I'm Apollo's son. Like it is just not like, I'm sorry not to diss on a daughter screen, (laughs) but it is just Nepo baby discourse in a movie form. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, But I think what is very interesting about Creed three is to, to reframe that through uh, Dame because there's a great bit where um, Adonis is like, Donnie is like, I'm not going to train you, Dame. Like, you just came out of nowhere. I can't turn you into an overnight success. And then Dame's like, isn't that what happened to you? And I was like, touche! (laughs) Touche! Like, I liked that they brought in this character to kind of, like, 
to sort of turn a little bit more self-critical about who Adonis is and and like how he got his position in life like that felt a lot more nuanced yeah. than than what I'd seen in the previous Creed movies uh mm. which is interesting I just find it really interesting that Sylvester Stallone said that he didn't want to do this movie because he was like it's too dark and I like my heroes to not struggle that much and I'm kind of like Mm, that's the best thing about this movie, though. Like, I'm sorry, it's the best to still Yeah, not to disagree with Rocky, doesn't it? Please don't come yeah. get me up, Rocky Balboa. But I feel like you might be wrong in this case. Like, it it has vastly improved the movie. I think. Yeah. I gotta say. I didn't like Sylvester Stallone coming out with those comments. Um, it just felt a little bit classless. You me. heard it here um, first. Amon is challenged. Yeah, no. <laughs> let's go let's go Rocky no I'll get my ass whipped in 10 seconds but it just felt a little unnecessary know, a little bit classless why not just support this franchise that you had a uh, great role in Michael B. Jordan's making his directorial debut why not just keep all that other stuff to yourself and actually oh, just oh come on support. it's not that deep to, you to say what him. Him. Yeah. he can say what he wants yeah. it's his franchise if just... he doesn't want to do it and this is what's great he can say his honest feelings like he shouldn't have to just suddenly like his comments say he didn't want to do it and then you can just the proof is in the puddings that they made this film and he will probably watch and think oh you know what I was wrong about it so you know what I'm not going to like you don't, you're not like got to sign an NDA that you have to be positively supported yeah, everything but if you don't I like just... the direction of it. But his comments know. were like the comment where he said, I didn't do it, is immediately followed by, but I love Michael B. Jordan and I support him. And I'm like, Exactly. Like he's, he's never been unsupportive of the film. I, mm. I think it's totally fine to be honest about it. Like he was just being honest about why he didn't do it. Um, I think there's also some stuff with one of the producers, Evan. Um, there's like a rights issue as well that means he's a little bit burnt by the Rocky franchise. But like, he loves Michael B. Jordan, don't worry. They're, they're all love, all love. <laughs> I know that he got mad and they were talking about doing a uh, film centered on Drago, and then he yeah. so he got really angry about that. But yeah, but but that's anyway. not yeah, that's not to do yeah. with Michael B. Jordan and Creed. Yeah. That's to do with the like the history of the the rights issues with Rocky and who like owns the franchise. Um, yeah. But it's all good. Yeah. It's all there's no hate, no hate. <laughs> all love. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think I know, speaking man. of Michael directing, though, I think he did a solid job. And I think especially in those boxing, I I think when you watch these movies, I always I love sports films, so I love it seeing the training and the montages and like all that. And of course then, you do. Just, and, I mean, I mean <laughs> am I gonna get it on DVD and create like should I do like a TikTok is just like Michael B. Jordan and Philip oh, May just like doing all stuff. Well. But I also think it was like amazing to see the choreography, like when they were doing all the sparring and stuff, and even in the ring, the final fight, I thought that was really well done. Um, yeah, and I felt it, and the very fun, like, and even just like the certain things are like, it's kind of gross, but also like when you see a hit, and it's like you see the sweat kind of go in slow motion yeah. off the body, and it's yeah. like, uh, ah. <laughs> sorry if you wanted the noise, that was me opening my mouth and sticking my tongue because I want to swallow all of the major sweat. <laughs> <laughs> the grossest moment in this film for me by far was when I think Dane takes a hit. And then he goes back to his corner after a round and they take out his gum shield and like, I think a couple of teeth come with it and you hear the sound and then it's, it's nasty. I think I might have looked away from the screen at that point. It was, it was ugly. Um, but yeah, no, I, 
really liked what he was doing. Michael B. Jordan with the final fight as well. The visuals were really cool, very fantastical. But I love that it's not just directorial flair there. It's actually playing a really crucial role in the storytelling because it puts you in the headspaces of what both Adonis and Dame are feeling and thinking in that moment. And they're doing it without dialogue as well. But yeah, absolutely, the emotional storytelling is really, really working in that moment. So yeah, Michael B. Jordan as a director. I could, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next behind the camera. You can fully tell that man loves anime. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, you need to tell me Michael B. Jordan that movie. And I, I really like that because it, it is an immersive tonal shift from... I feel like the other Creed movies were shot to look like boxing matches, like mm-hmm. on TV, right? And this, it's like... That even in the final match, like they put Adonis in like the white boxing shorts and yeah, the black boxing shorts. It's very like white cowboy hat, black cowboy hat vibes. <laughs> and I, I think it's it's like I like that he he took the risk and he was like, no, I'm gonna go full like balls to the wall anime. Yeah. <laughs> like the crowd's gonna disappear and it's just gonna be the two of them like fighting alone. It's great. Can I, I also that. say what I like about um what I like about um this film is like the houses they live in. It's like this looks yeah, this oh, is yeah. what I expect from <laughs> Like kind of like like thinks it's stylish, but it's actually not like he has a massive picture of himself as like an entire feature wall. <laughs> I love yeah. the Hennessy product placement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, would you like a drink? Oh here, my Hennessy bottle. <laughs> I'm also really intrigued. He must be a real guy. He does like um, uh, sport, like boxing announcing. But the guy who does like, uh, you know, the guy who's in the center of the ring is like the announcer mm. with like a yeah. white guy who has dreads. <laughs> he must be like someone who's <laughs> yeah. within the scene that they got him. Because I'm just like, in this yeah. economy? <laughs> yeah. this I have to say, you just... Skinny white guy with very long, like, rusted dregs. And you're like, <laughs> but he's like tied it up into like a bun. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you just reminded me of a funny thing that happens in the announcing, actually. So that final fight when they're announcing, they announce the, the guy announces the name, and then he says, Anderson! Twice! Because it's, 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 it's twice! Yeah, it yeah. Uh, Green! Green! Yeah. Green. <laughs> yeah. Which should, should make me chuckle. Also, I, I love that <laughs> they got Dame, like, it's like, again, it's like, Oh, African, and they give him they give him this like this like skirt sort of skirt shorts as well. It's like yeah. oh, he's <laughs> he's definitely like the black Egyptian sort of guy. He's like Afro like that sort of stuff. He's like yes, I I <laughs> and I was like I like that character not because I feel like that's what he like that's the character when he says he goes we finally got to Africa then and I was like oh yeah 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 <laughs> specifically that type of like hotep sort of kind of like character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good movie, I think. Uh, but let's find out how good. Should you go to the cinema see it good? Should you stay and watch it on streaming good? Or should you just skip it entirely? Hannah, what say you? Screen. Chloe Slockway. Yeah, screen. Yeah, it's a screen for me too. We didn't uh, mention her, but I really like the um, father, mother, daughter relationship in this as well. Um, the deaf daughter played by Myla Kent. Uh, she's really, really fun. And yeah, if they are doing more Creed movies as Michael B. Jordan wants to do, I think potentially future, if you do a little bit of a time jump, have her be the one in the ring. I want to see that. I want to see that. From two 
flying subjects to many documentary subjects. Here's subject. My name is Margie Ratliff from The Staircase, and I give my permission to be filmed. I understand it's a documentary about documentary subjects. Documentaries are having a moment. They're doing great at the box office. They're becoming a part of pop culture. The hunger for great nonfiction has grown and grown and grown and grown. Many choose to be on camera because they want to set their record straight. We know that documentary can have a concrete impact on our world. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. I love that, the police stalker song. Made famous, even more famous by um, P. Diddy, Puff Daddy. Or uh, when, was it when Tupac died? When Biggie died. Biggie died, that's it. Biggie died. Oh, yeah, because Thug's Mansion was... No, that was a different one. No, Biggie died, yeah. Anyway, this movie is not about Biggie or <laughs> Biggie or Tupac at all. <laughs> or the police. Um, subject explores the life-altering experience of sharing one's life on screen through key participants of acclaimed documentaries, The Staircase, Hoop Dreams, The Wolfpack, Capturing the Freedmans, and The Square. These erstwhile documentary stars reveal the highs and lows of their experiences, as well as the everyday realities of having their lives put under a microscope. Also featuring commentary from such influential names in the doc world as Kirsten Johnson, Sam Pollard, Tom Powers, and, Sean, and Sonia Childress, Childress, is that? And Sonia Childress, the film unpacks vital issues around the ethics and responsibility inherent in documentary filmmaking. As tens of millions of people consume documentaries in an unprecedented golden era, subject urges audiences to consider the often profound impact on their participants. So the credit, the film is the film is directed by Camilla Hall and Jennifer Texiera. Um, and yeah, it's funny. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, didn't I? When um when we were talking about Marcel the Shell, because I'd seen it on the same day, and I was like, oh, that's kind of similarly the ethics of documentaries. Of course, that's a mockumentary. Um, I think, first off, had you, had you, Clarice, had you seen the documentaries um, that they talked about or featured? I'd seen, I feel like most of them, if I hadn't seen them, I knew exactly what they were. I mean, this is like the fucking portal scene of famous documentary movies from the last <laughs> 10 years it's like oh my god now it's like capturing the freedmans <laughs> now it's the wolf pack um so it's kind of, i was sort of in a very basic level i was quite impressed by the fact they were able to reach out to all these individuals and and get their involvement um it's pretty impressive yeah come on i think i'd seen like hoop dreams and the staircase I need to watch The Square. That's on Netflix. Um, yeah. Had you seen much? I'd seen a couple of them. Mm-hmm. I had seen Hoop Dreams. Um, but I'm not sure if I'd seen most of the rest of them, to be honest. I've seen a couple of films that Sam Pollard has uh, directed. Um, big fan of his. But, uh, but yeah, I felt like I'd got everything that I needed to get from what this film was trying to do. And in a sense, this film is not about those documentaries, it's about the subjects and the filmmaking that went into those documentaries, which I found to be very interesting and very compelling. So I suppose the argument for this thing, and I suppose the issues that it raises, do you think it kind of was compelling? Did it make you think about things differently? I certainly certainly made me think about documentaries quite differently as well. I suppose the kind of, and it's subjects that we've 
I suppose issues that that we've talked about in a long time when it comes to factual entertainment, right? Because mm-hmm. like you know, when you talk about you know the aftercare, if you've been on a documentary, what is the responsibility for um, the documentary to provide aftercare, especially when the subject is very torrid, their life could be threatened, and also this, this by the nature of becoming such a massively famous people because of these documentaries, suddenly your like you know quality of life can deteriorate because you're too well known or even the fact that the idea of being paid I think that was a really interesting um, aspect of it like should if you're making I mean of course documentaries don't normally make a lot of money but then if the people who are making it and suddenly get loads of like distribution money all that should it go back to the people whose Mm. story that you're taking because fundamentally this is not the documentarian story it's someone else's and they're profiting of it in some way artistically Mm -hmm. financially commercially in any way um Amon like did it did it confirm things to you was there anything that stood out for you that kind of made you think oh wow I I I want and now when I watch documentaries I'm going to be a little bit more um have a bit more empathy when I think about the subjects uh on screen yeah no all of what you said and more um stood out to me it's at the very very end of the film but there's a subject who is having her story told again and she wasn't contacted before it was greenlit she's only contacted when the actress requested time with her to Sophie to, Turner. You know, or, yeah. Sophie Turner. Yeah, wait, I was I was trying to be kind. It's fine. I mean, it's in a documentary. I don't think you've been yeah. unkind yeah. to like reference yeah. specific things in it. Yeah, um, but yeah, and it's just like the person who is the subject of this is not making any money off of this. Does not want that part of her story told and be litigated again. Is going to be put through it again, because all the people in her circle are going to be bringing it up, asking questions, and somebody is going to be profiting off of her. Many people, in fact, are going to be profiting off of her, and yet you want to come and talk to me to know better, I guess, how to play a role. All of those sorts of things, it really sort of underlined how messy and how really ruthless uh, the industry is when it comes to greenlighting certain things. Um, so, yeah, one one thing I do, do love about just the nature of this film is that it's given the narrative back to the subjects, giving them more agency and getting this story out there in terms of what goes into the filmmaking of it. And I do love how, yes, that was one sort of really compelling, really hard-hitting example of the negativity that can transpire from this. But that is not the only thing that can result from documentary filmmaking. It feels like they hit a lot of different points, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, whether it started off initially positive and then five years removed or whatever from the film and all the awards and all the attention, they feel differently about it. I feel like they documented all of those things in a really interesting way too. I like like how detailed it was in that regard. Mm. Uh, Clarice, like uh, Amon, you mentioned kind of like the production and then like how many of them are made. I thought it was really interesting, like in in a way it was quite critical of like the kind of factory, documentary factory of like Netflix um, and the way they produce things so quickly. Um, I mean, was that quite interesting for you to kind of kind of have, because again, you go on, they kept on using that as a reference, using it as a visual image of like, you can go on Netflix and it's all these things. And, it's, and I always think it's interesting just how much like stuff that it's like, quite damning and about murders and things like that are quite like harrowing subject but like 
they lap it up like these streamers are trying to make the most money out and they don't get paid a lot but they have to produce them really quickly was that quite eye-opening for you i made the mistake of watching that cecil hotel one (laughs) (laughs) don't watch it it's terrible (laughs) so i feel like um the concept of the netflix documentary factory being quite exploitative was not a surprise to me but i think I, my thing with this documentary is I, I found it really interesting um, and it brought up a lot of um, major discussions that are happening within the documentary filmmaking world. But And I wonder whether it's just the nature of like needing to talk to all these different people and find out their backstories and what's going on with them. It felt like it was really just like touching the surface because... Yeah. It was acknowledging how nuanced these conversations are, especially with ideas of, of yeah, who gets payment and and what is exploitation when it comes to this uh, form. Uh, but it kept like, I was like, oh, this is getting really interesting. Then they'd skip <laughs> and they, they'd go back and they start talking about something else. And I was like, no, go back. Talk more <laughs> about this. And like, there's, a, there's sometimes a little bit of like lack of specificity. Like, for example, with the payment, right. they talked about um, Arthur Agee, who is one of the few documentary subjects who did get compensation for Hoop Dreams. Um, and you see him with his son and I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that he's just having a great time now. Like, yeah, I guess partially being able to live off the the royalties from this documentary, but I would have loved to have seen like more of a flip side, like more specific examples of people who really did not get their payment. Like, which documentaries are paying people and which are not? Yeah, I'm like I kind of want to know, you know. <laughs> but I, it's like yeah, I'm yeah. I'm I'm being like kind of harsh because I do really appreciate the just the the attitude and the approach of this documentary yeah Uh, but I was still a bit like oh but I also think that's the kind of the kind of irony about doing a documentary about documentaries because even it is a documentary that is creating a narrative and has something that what they do what they choose to put in and what they don't put in you know so even Mm -hmm. it (laughs) in a way it's like did they pay the subjects to appear in their No, I was thinking that too. I was like, that's was the like, question. Oh my God, it's like, but then this is just like... If you're yeah, asking like the hurdles all the way down. Should you be opening up and saying, okay, <laughs> we did beforehand at the end, like doing an end note saying, we pay the participants, uh, we did this, blah, blah, blah. I think what's also interesting, like, again, what you said about Scratch the Surface, because um, I remember watching The Wolf Pack years ago, and it was by directed by Christelle Mosel, who, who also directed Skate Kitchen, which I really liked. Um, but I remember going look, after watching the documentary, reading that actually Wolfpack was really quite criticised um, for kind of being quite exploitative. But in the film, because you've got the guy who was in it, I don't think they kind of grappled with it too much. And he was like, "Oh, I got all this benefit from it because now I want to be a filmmaker." Blah. And they had Christelle Moselle, they filmed bits. I think they got her to like, you know. So it's it is quite interesting about like the difficulties of like again documentaries they're not truth they're a version of the truth but done in a farm like closer to the truth that you have but it's all perspective isn't it it's like how you kind of can curate is curated for curated truth um which i think is quite interesting um yeah it definitely made me think about things a lot more. it also made me realize like it, it made me think more to be more of like take more empathy when i watch documentaries and think about like i remember watching this documentary called wildcat uh, I don't know if you saw it, and it was nominated for a few things um, about a guy who was an ex-soldier who goes to work in like a 
uh, an animal sanctuary in I think Peru or somewhere like that but he's clearly got massive mental health issues and the guy would clearly needed therapy like he clearly needs to go into therapy he should not be a money's animal because mm. like he was had so, it was a ridiculous he had this connection with this wildcat that felt like oh you're using this as an emotional support but it's a wild animal <laughs> you know and I was thinking mm. to myself watching I was like god this guy's really annoying but then I thought oh wow this like I should have a bit more empathy for this guy because he is going through it but it's like Again, this is what I'm being shown of the guy, right? This is what hmm. it's a curated image. Um, so yeah, I suppose. Okay, God, Mum. Um, this is sort of following up from what Clarice was saying a little bit, but um, as effective as this ninety-minute or so documentary was, do you think that this would have functioned better as like a ten-episode miniseries to get into more detail on some of the things that you're saying, Clarice? Oh, well, like one episode per subject. I mean, I not necessarily that it needed to be a series. Mm. Um, I think I would be interested in watching a documentary if they had chosen like one per... But obviously this wouldn't have worked in terms of like selling the film and getting people to watch it. But if they mm-hmm. maybe focused on one individual and really gotten into the backstory of like what happened, what was the aftermath... Um, but no, like I don't want to be overly negative about it because I I did really appreciate it and I found it interesting. But I think it's just yeah, Hannah, it's what it's what you said. It's like this is the thing with documentaries that I always trip myself over about is that everything is narrative, and there is no truth, and it's all constructed. And I like I my brain I this is why sometimes I love documentaries, but sometimes I can't watch them because my brain overthinks about it. Mm-hmm. It's like everything is a choice. Yeah. I think what the beauty of this, again, any good, I think any good film makes you want to do learn more. I think that's the mm-hmm. beauty of a film, film like this. And personally, if I was going to do it as a series, rather than having each episode dedicated to each like a subject, like the film, it'd be more like the ethics, like payment, um, aftercare, like things like that. Because that way I think mm-hmm. it'd be easier, Rob, because again, some of the things, like I don't really, some of the things I just like, you don't really need to do a whole segment on certain things because you could just all you're doing is rehashing what went on and it's like what i'm interested in is like what is the thesis like what's the thesis here what are the points that it's trying to make and i like you said it'd be really cool if the follow-up to this is actually go okay someone's seen this documentary and now they're going to do a bit more research into uh things. but it's also a question that i wonder as someone who writes articles features critical pieces where i i speak to people as experts and subjects there is a question in my head is like sometimes i think should I be paying these people for being, for doing interviews with me for this article? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, like it's a different ball game, isn't it? When it comes to like that sort of journalism, but documentaries are also mm-hmm. a form of journalism. It's a really, mm-hmm. it's a really great area. And I think it just depends, isn't it? It's a, I don't know if, know if there's a right or wrong question, but hopefully um, I think the biggest thing is just don't be exploitative or do your best to try and be as unexploitative as possible. <laughs> mm, yeah. Just think of that scene from Inside Lewin Davis where he starts yelling at them for asking to play the song at the dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> My favourite scene. <laughs> okay, so subject is out in cinemas uh, this weekend. Uh, oh, now, now, because it's Sunday. Amon, um, uh, mm. uh, screen, stream or skip? Stream. Clarice? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, sc- uh sc- screen, screen, screen. Yeah, I think I'm going to say stream. 
actually. Um, probably not on Netflix, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no, but Netflix will. Netflix will so buy this. Yeah. <laughs> because they'll be like, we're so self-aware. <laughs> yeah. They're like, look, free marketing for all our Netflix documentaries. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. They said Netflix so many times. <laughs> Right, so uh, from documentary subjects to very real friends of ours who we love dearly and are not fictional characters from a galaxy far, far away. It's the Mandalorian. Our people are scattered like stars in the galaxy. What are we? What do we stand for? Being a Mandalorian is not just learning about how to fight. You also have to know how to navigate the galaxy. That way, you'll never be lost. Look big in the house. You know what I'm saying? This is the way. This is The Mandalorian Season 3. Uh, the journeys of the Mandalorian through the Star Wars galaxy continue. Once a lone bouncy hunter, Din Djarin has reunited with Grogu in the Book of Boba Fett, which some people missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the New Republic struggles to lead the galaxy away from its dark history. The Mandalorian will cross paths with old allies and make new enemies as he and Grogu continue their journey together. So really, they haven't said anything about what's happening in Season 3. <laughs> the recurring theme with Mandalorian Season 3 is we don't know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah, I love it. The, the entire Jonathan. cover story, and it's like, nope, no, 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 no. <laughs> Grogu will be in it. That's all we That's can all say. <laughs> Created by John Favreau, it stars Pedro Pascal with Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder as his on-set stunt doubles. Big up the other Mandalorians. <laughs> there's actually, to be fair, there's actually five guys who are the Mandalorians. Oh, wow. Like, uh, one well, thing these, did... Yeah. Because, basically, there's a few guys, and, and, and as I'm told, basically, when I did the interview, like, Pedro, <laughs> my good friend Pedro, <laughs> Pedro and Katie were like, depending on what the Mandalorian, Din, or uh, Bo-Katan need to do, they get the right person in a suit for it. So if it's like, you know, I don't know, someone in, like, flying around on thingies or whatever, like, yeah, whoever's got the best mm. craft skills... <laughs> yes okay. but i know for so this season is the first time that brendan and latif have been credited as main cast as like the other mandalords so they're all like i don't know they're in the credits now it's great um also katie sackoff emily swallow carl weathers giancarlo esposito and amy sedaris and uh i i we already mentioned this but i spoke <laughs> to john favreau Woo! and um by the end of it, I feel like we were just giggling about how cool Star Wars is. <laughs> um, I just want to say, we did talk about things that were not Salacious B. Crumb. That is not the majority of the interview. It is one question that we moved on from. 
quite swiftly, but we did talk about Grogu, talked a little bit about Andor and the tonal shifts within the Star Wars universe. Um, and also, I may have accidentally called Din Daddy. I need to listen back. <laughs> 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 I was on the train home and I was like, I meant to say dad, and I think I said daddy. <laughs> Where's Eliza? Pedro, what are you doing? <laughs> Uh, and here I am talking to John Favreau. So I am so excited to talk to you today. Okay. And I have to be honest, like I struggle to talk about Star Wars without getting a little bit emotional. Okay. Because, like I have been in the Star Wars community for a while. I've spoken to so many fans. And mm-hmm. the thing that always like really strikes me about it and has that I've really come to understand over the years is how profoundly these stories resonate with people Mm -hmm. and also just like on a complete multitude of levels and I wanted to ask for you I mean you know you've been with Clone Wars with Solo and now with Mandalorian Mm -hmm. has your concept of what Star Wars is and what it represents uh, I guess evolved in any way I'm very fortunate to have to be in such close contact and collaborating with people who've been part of it long before I was. I mean, I was involved, I'm, 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 I'm day one, 10 years old in the theater, an usher in the movie theater in high school by the time Return of the Jedi came out. So I'm, I'm there from the beginning. But that doesn't mean that I've been as closely involved as people are over time because you go through different phases. And although I've watched the films, uh, the, the level of... Uh, of involvement that people have who've read, you know, all the extended universe materials and and really delve deep into the ramifications of what the prequels were and, and then into the Clone Wars and all the animated stuff that Dave did. There's so much there and the, and the sequels as well. So to be able to speak to the people who were there for the prequels, to, to talk to, you know, to, to Doug Chang who was working with George on the prequels and and we have the design of the N1 and Oh, I always love that ship that I designed. Well, let's let's hot rod it out. Really? Yeah, do some drawings. What would it look like if Mandalorian got in there? Because I like hot rod stuff too, like that. And the idea of like chopping parts off and bolting things on. And that whole episode, you know, when, when they're building that ship with um with Pelly and Mando that Bryce directed. And I'm like, nah, just keep it all. I, I want to see them building. I can watch people build choppers and hot rods forever. And audiences liked it. Like they didn't get bummed out. And that was real Star Wars stuff, and that's George. George was like a hot rod guy, right? He was like a, you know, he was a, he was a hot rodder back in you know American Graffiti. So, you know, to, and, and to be there with Dave, who worked by George's side for ten years, and to talk to George and have George pop in sometimes, and then for me to visit him sometimes, and to be able to have conversations, like you get a healthy respect for the world you're entering into and how much thought went into it. And not that you can't change things and you can't deviate. And I don't think people want to just see the same thing over and over again, right? So there's always room for evolution. And we try to include other voices of other directors and let them each each episode feel a little different from each other, right? But as long as we all agree that we love Star Wars and we want to be respectful to that we're, that we're adding on to something that came before and we're not just making it completely our own thing. And, and understanding what that really means requires, like, crowdsourcing. We have to have a group of people saying, is this Star Wars? I don't know if that's Star Wars. Is that Star I think it's Star Wars. I think it's like me and Rick might agree. And then Dave comes and, no, no, you can't do that. You know? so, and we'll go back and forth. But we never blatantly say we don't care. 
It's always like, eh, it feels like that. Let's go for it. Even even the Grogu, even Baby Yoda, like at first day, was like, ah, it could, could be. You know, let's be careful around this one, you know. And then even George likes him. So, like, you got to take chances, too. But you want to look backwards for inspiration. And not just to Star Wars. You want to go back to mythology, anthropology. That's where George got it from. George got. That's why we looked at Westerns. That's why we looked at Samurai movies. We wanted to look to and, and, and Flash Gordon. What, what, what influenced George? Maybe we can draw from that same wellspring. I find it so interesting, like, looking at Star Wars and also the MCU, like, the mm -hmm. approach to the idea of shared universe, because I feel like yeah. Marvel, uh, certainly now, like, there's a real directive of we want every individual project to have such a distinctive voice to say, mm -hmm. this is the one that is a horror movie, this is the one that mm -hmm. is a high school comedy. Well, I feel like with Star Wars, like, Andor and The Mandalorian mm -hmm. are obviously different, mm -hmm. but it's harder to pinpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wondered for you, you know, when you're working on The Mandalorian and then Ahsoka and then mm -hmm. The Skeleton mm -hmm. Crew, like, how are you approaching those shows tonally in terms of saying, do they have to be cohesive or individual? Like, where is it? I think it, it comes from today? the people. I think it comes from casting the right people in the director's chair or the, or the, or the showrunner's chair. Or the, you know, so we have to... Look, they're only going to do this if they love it, like, and it's the only it's the only way you could do it. You got you got to want to go there. You got to want to dive in, and even the directors like Peyton Reed, you know, he he did the last episode of the last season. I mean, just like us on set, like, can you believe we're you know like we're doing you know like we're doing the scene where Luke Skywalker comes out and you know you, you really don't want to mess it up. You want to make sure it's good, and you want to you love it. You want everybody else to love it. It's like you're throwing a party. For friends, it's like you're putting a mixtape together, or DJing a set at a party, or cooking a meal. Like, you want people to dig it who appreciate who who geek out on what you geek out on. It's like chefs cooking for chefs. I, I learned a lot from them, learning about the film. And there's like a, a different energy when they're cooking for each other. Like you go to a restaurant with a chef, you don't even look at a menu. They just they just crush you with the. And that's sort of the feeling that like when it's at its best. We're speaking to other people who dig it, and they're digging what we're doing with it, and that's the best. That's the best, and and then also bringing other people in who maybe didn't know or didn't consider themselves Star Wars fans, and all of a sudden they're like, "Oh yeah, I like this character. I, I'm getting sucked in," because you got to have the next generation. It can't just be people who grew up with it already on nostalgia. It's got to be fresh and new, and so each person does a different version. Dave with Ahsoka, I mean, he's the showrunner there, so I'm there to support, give advice, and help but you know it's also supporting a vision and with him he's coming from doing clone wars working with george these characters that he created some of them with george some of them on his own that's a whole different thing and he's talking about you know you're dealing with the bigger story in a bigger way skeleton crew john watts like hey i got an idea what if you know what's it like for kids growing up in this circumstance that's the backdrop and then me and dave are there helping with that but it's very much John, John and Chris's, uh, John watched Chris Ford's voice. Uh, and he has a whole sort of style that he does. I know I was in the movies with him. I was in the, the, the Spider-Man movies. So I think they each have their own thing. And that's why I think Andor looks different than Obi-Wan. And they look different from Clone Wars. And, and, uh, and I think that Kathy Kennedy's been really great about finding people who engage with Star Wars and supporting them. And she's just always done that her whole career. And that's why Andor could, you know, feels very different tonally than us. I think geared towards, you know, we definitely want to skew younger and, you know, towards the 
the audience that we were when we first saw Andor feels very sophisticated, you know? So I'm the target for Andor. You know, I'm, I'm there paying attention <laughs> to everything and like, what's happening? What's, oh, what is, you know, what are the, you know? And, and it's also a very like, I, I, I'd say it's a drama that, that is compelling even if you don't, like even outside of Star Wars, just, just interesting characters and story. And then beautiful visuals as well. Speaking of Next Generation, I, I'm so interested in the volume yeah. and that feeling of like old school, new school uh, approach to, to tech. And, you know, I know in season one where you're kind of first using it, yeah. it felt to me there was like, there was this very intense but sort of nervous excitement about it. Yeah. To me, it reminded me almost of like the beginning of the sound era or like the beginning yeah, of CGI, yeah, sure. like where could this go? Yeah. And so I, I wondered now, you know, for season three, working with the volume, does it still feel like that frontier technology? No, no, it's different. In a way, like, okay, how can we innovate and make it better? But it's only incrementally better. Now now we have other challenges, which are like, now other people are using it. Great, like we wanted that to happen. But as more people use it, it's like a magic trick where you start to, you know, you want to make sure you're not showing your hand and people aren't predicting, oh, there's where, the minute you could see it and it's distracting, that's not good. It's got to be invisible. So we challenge ourselves with different, hybridizing different versions, configuring it different ways, not using it, you know, as much as people think. There's, you know, a big mixture. We do a lot of set extensions as well. But we want to keep innovating and keep making it better. But there's new technology. I mean, we're messing around with a lot of, you know, AI machine learning type stuff around the deep, uh, around the de-aging. And a lot of those innovations led to, you know, what we were able to do the first season with Luke, then with Book of Boba Fett. Essentially, same technology. If you see the trailer for the uh, Lucasfilm with um, Indiana Jones, the de-aging, I mean, it's gotten even better. So I love being part of technical innovations. I also like the audience to understand them because, you know, I want, I want people to know what the magic trick is because it's one thing in a Star Wars story where I was watching it, but people are using it for other stuff. I want people to be educated and understand how to, you know, how to wrap their head around what technology has to offer. And also looking into things like game engine rendering, you know, real-time rendering, the technologies that are emerging around gaming that could be applied towards filmmaking. You know, a lot of that we're using. So, so yes, we have the volume, and that does use game engine, but we're exploring other technical uh, possibilities based on breakthroughs that are happening in other areas. And that's part of what makes it fun and dynamic for me as well. Yeah, and, okay, I have to ask, because at the beginning of the very first episode, mm -hmm. there was the, the quacky and monkey lizards right. getting roasted. And mm -hmm. then I saw on the trailer for this, there's a full tree of them. Mm -hmm. My favorite Star Wars character is Salacious B. Crumb. Is he? So I'm just going to ask the question, is there any possibility that he may have survived the sail barge and maybe there'd be like I a think, crumb well, series? I'll, t I'll tell you. I mean, we had um, uh, Max Rebo. Yes, right? well, that's what got me thinking. Max Rebo. I mean, many people thought that he uh, uh, was, you know, f met the end of his days in the sail barge, right? Because there was, but we never really saw. And, and then uh, Bib Fortuna, too. Wasn't Bib Fortuna on the sail barge? I think he was. And then he showed up at the end of uh, season two. So never say never. But but the good thing is that you could see that the that the species are flourishing now on the barge. <laughs> Okay, that's great. I'm going to live in hope. If that's not a metaphor for <laughs> renewal, that you go from them getting uh, it, it, getting uh, served as snacks and, and now they're now they're yeah. flourishing in trees, <laughs> you know that's part of that's part of the the myth. 
Yeah. And they're actually important. I mean, it's a little thing that we laugh about, but it's it's important. It it's, it says it it says more than sometimes dialogue could when you see that and what that means of what's happened to that planet because of uh, the heroic acts of our lead characters. I mean, that's the thing that I I I love the, the creature side of it. So I to wrap up, I just want to ask one question about Grogu because mm -hmm. the thing that I love about him is that little touch of darkness. He kind of reminds yeah, yeah. me of Ray a little bit, where uh -huh. it's just like he loves his dad so much yeah. that I worry about him a little well, bit. Well, that's attachment, right? Isn't that, yeah. isn't that what the Jedi warn about? It's it's interesting. And that was, you know, part, you're talking about like when he does the force, force yes. choke? Yeah. 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 And that's <laughs> part of it is like, because everybody's like, oh, he should just stay together. Like, no, you can't have that as a pet. Like, that's, it's dangerous to have this is a this is a child with abilities, and if you just treat that child like a sidekick, like you have to, that's a full time job, and you need somebody who knows how to handle this stuff, and that's why the armor is like you got to take him to his kind, to his people, and that's what led to us saying, well, who 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 can it be? And Dave is like, it kind of has to be Luke, doesn't it? We're like, it wouldn't make sense if it wasn't Luke. And so all those things unfolded through those, those you know, putting yourselves, cornering your characters in situations where they have to face uh, not easy challenges, right? That's, that's part of creating dramatic tension and, and, and possibility, like, like potential energy for your story. And so having them go and uh, know that they have to bring them to a Jedi, and then that de Jedi that he ends up with is, is, is you know, it's, it's Luke. Because also, like, how, how, who else would you trust this little kid? The audience would be like, anybody else would be like, no. But with Luke, you're like, well, it's Luke Skywalker. I guess it's okay. But then we find out that it's still not, he, he bonded too much with dad. And, and, and then dad bonded too much with, with the baby. And, and, and so that was what was nice about having those chapters in the Book of Boba Fett. You show them apart. I didn't want to watch a whole season of Mandalorian with them apart because they, oh, they so neither of them are doing well. <laughs> yeah, they're not having fun. <laughs> you know, him without him going back to his old ways, it looks it feels weird now. He he he's sort of been renewed a bit by that. You know, playing the role he played with, with the kid, and then the kid. You know, as cool as it is, when you got lightsabers and Luke Skywalker. You know, he's still looking off to see the plane take off. It's like no people are what's important. Family and and Star Wars has always been about family. And uh, even when it's not supposed to be, but Luke, it's what saves Luke in the, in the, in the original trilogy. And, you know, he wants to go for his friends. He wants to leave too. And I think Luke, you know, I had a conversation with Dave about this. Luke recognizes that in the kid, in, in, you know, he knows that he can't, you don't want to force him. You, you give him the choice. And then we get that great scene that's inspired by Lone Wolf and Cub where he gets to make the decision. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about this stuff. We think about it, but it's always about the, the relationships and the characters. And that's to me what, what, as much as all the things we talk about, that the costumes have no buttons and there's no wheels and there's no, you know, all the, all the rules. The real rule is it's got to be about family and relationships and character development and coming of age and facing tough decisions and being a good person in a world that isn't always good. And that to me is why I always loved Star Wars. And as much as I like Star Trek and the utopian vision of it, and I loved it growing up, there's something really compelling about that. And that's what the Western does as well, and that's why it feels like a Western, because we, we try to face those, those same types of uh, dramatic um, conundrums. Uh, 
and that's that's. Oh, I'm uh, I feel like it. I'm gonna get emotional yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank yeah. you so much. It was so lovely to speak to you. Yeah, I'm my so pleasure. Excited. My pleasure. I hope you like it. I really hope you do. I'm sure I will. And now it is time for our. The Mandalorian is back like he never left. Um, really, really cool, really, really fun. Uh, this first episode, uh, which aired earlier this week, um. Yeah, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. I think there was a balance that they were trying to strike because as you mentioned, Clarice, we got a lot of the Mandalorian in the book of Boba Fett. In fact, there were at least two episodes that felt very much like they were the Mandalorian-centric with maybe a little Boba Fett on the side, if anything else. Um, And that is where some really crucial plot things happened. And it felt like, this episode was one catching us up or catching viewers up who had not seen Boba Fett. So I had to do that. It had to reintroduce certain characters who may or may not be key players for the rest of the season. And it also had to set up a few things as well. Also for the season, that's a lot to balance in the premiere episode. I don't think it always did that smoothly as fun as this episode still was. What did you make of that, Chris? Yeah, it was definitely... There were some clumsy lines mm-hmm. of like, yeah. <laughs> I am Bo-Katan and I am... Um, all my people left me and I don't want the Darksaber anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, like, my honest opinion about the, the Din Grogu thing is is that when we got to the end of season two, I think it was very clear to everyone on the planet that they were going to be reunited. Like, I feel like there would have been, there would have been riots in the streets if they didn't, if they just went, (laughs) well, that's it. Now Din's going to go off on his own. So it's sort of just like having to do the homework. Book of Boba Fett just felt like the homework season where it's like, we just got to do all this shit and then we'll go back and now we'll do the Mandalorian again. <laughs> I, I almost appreciate them just getting it over and done with in yeah. season. So now we can just do actual <laughs> stuff. Uh, but yeah, it was a little bit, I, there's lots that I really liked about this episode. It was a little bit clumsy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hannah, what did you make of the action in this episode? Because for me, that was probably my favorite thing. The opening scene where Mando arrives in style to save a bunch of Mandalorians. I'm going to give this the highest praise I can give anything ever. And I'm going to say that that scene was very Thor and Wakanda-esque. That is the highest praise I can give anything. And I'm giving it to that scene. Uh, mm. Freaking love that. And then it was bettered, I think, by the... Uh, fight that Mando has with a few pirates who should frankly know better um, uh, in in space, navigating an asteroid storm at the same time. That was very skillful. They're already putting that new fancy starfighter to really good use, I think. Hmm. Hmm. I have to say, I mean, it was fun. I liked it, but I was just like, mm. what these Mandalorians like a warrior race? Why can't they deal with Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing this up. Like, because I mean, it felt so dumb what they were doing in that yeah. opening scene. Sorry, I mean, they, no, they, did, they did start doing things. <laughs> like, they put the, they, you know, they put the um, 
like the explosive things like that. And I was like, have yeah. they never, maybe they just, again, I assume they went to this planet, but they didn't really know what the planet had to offer <laughs> or was hiding. They're also like an orthodox cult. They're kind of like yeah. the Mormons of the Yeah, they're Amish. <laughs> they're the Amish. Right? Yeah. I feel like they're, they're, they're not really fighting people. They're just like, no. they're no. just I'm, forging things. No, but, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to, I have to, because they, they do the explosives and it doesn't work. At that point, it's clear that this thing's hide is too thick to penetrate. The next thing we see is them firing their rope things. I'm like, what is the plan here? <laughs> like, yeah, no matter how many rope like... things you fire, you're not going to wrangle this thing. What is the plan here? You know how, like, everyone after lockdown forgot how to function as people? <laughs> I feel like that is this Mandalorian cult. Like, they have not been talking to anybody for years yeah. or doing anything or, I think, fighting anybody. <laughs> this was, like, their first <laughs> time they left yeah. the house in an emotional they're sense. A bit, they're so a bit I, would, rusty. I will defend that scene. <laughs> they're a bit I, rusty. I thought it was a great opening scene to really kind of, mm. like, get us into it. And it was like, I mean... <laughs> When he shoots that thing, and then suddenly you see Grogu's head just pop up, go. Yeah. It's like, here he is. Here he is. Uh, Allow me to be to this myself. I have to say, that helmet they give the little kid, it looked plastic. (laughs) It did not look like, I don't know what it is, but it just looked really like cheap. So I don't know. Maybe they didn't use Beskar. Um, yeah, I think it was good. I, it's so funny because I really do enjoy it. I do love Star Wars and stuff, but it's also so funny to me, certain elements of it. Again, it's like, this is a galaxy far, far away, but their pirates still look like fucking Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, even it's like you could do anything, but let's maintain this kind of like, uh, what is it? How would it be? Georgian, like kind of like mm. coats and like like the way they're resting Davy up. Jones Davy Jones yeah that. like the seaweed yeah. the seaweed thing no, is I it's like that. it is like <laughs> what was that, that was that quote that he says I was like this ain't no this ain't no nightmare you're in one or whatever it is what's that line yeah. from 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 what he says is it Bill Nye who says it or is it what's his face um oh, Jeffrey no, Rush first movie yeah, yeah you Jeffrey Rush believing in ghost stories oh yeah you start You're believing in ghost stories everyone it's like you're very much <laughs> that energy um uh I yeah I thought I thought it was yeah I had fun with it um yeah I don't know I also yeah. I also kind of like the way Bo Katan's is like they're like I'm a fucking like, like fuck it man my yeah. life means meaningless i failed everything i'm in a fucking existential nihilistic kind of vibe now it's like what yeah. am i supposed to do I, okay i kind of like it it's got this like very yeah. like such a yeah i think that's what i like about the mandalorian is that again it, it it's not afraid to kind of have like real world reactions to things that again I don't want it mm-hmm. all to look like the like we are but like emotionally mm-hmm. sometimes I think it's like they get those things right that make you feel like oh relatable <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. I tweeted this the other day I think Bo-Katan is going to be the MVP of this season um it's she doesn't really, give a really shit interesting. she was mad she was women <laughs> spreading on that phone I, like, I don't have the dissolve saber but I got a big pussy girl <laughs> <laughs> well like, i'm think, saying like i think she's doing that i i think she's doing that as a bit oh, I, I think yeah. she's planning something well this is what i'm saying like i think she might there might be a hill turn in her future because she really wants the dark saber and mm-hmm. if you know the history of the dark saber and it needs to be won in combat 
Um, and right now, dinner's not about that, but it's going to be interesting to see how far Bo-Katan is going to go but to she's reclaim that the long game. The girl has been through yeah. so much. She's gone through ups and downs mm. like Palpe. And I think definitely what I like about this episode is established that uh, it's about Mandalorians. Like, really going to be yeah. about Mandalorians, what it means, culture, like, politics, and getting together. We're going to see so many more. I mean, I didn't even know there was that many more Mandalorians about. Like, in that first thing, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, it's going to eat half of them. They're back down again. Um, I also <laughs> yes. thought it was really cl- funny how they clumsily revealed where Cara Dune was. <laughs> I mean, good, good, good yes, for me. I mean, I will say, it's very, like, they took the high ground by, like, not killing her off. <laughs> but saying, oh, yeah. she's been, you know, recruited for something else. They could have killed her off, but they were like, you know. She Maybe died she on her way back. back to Special Forces, I think is what <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm on Twitter right now. But yeah, I you know, I I don't mind that character, but should they move forward with it, they will be needing to recast it, obviously. Um question I wanted to ask you. I know at least one of us is a major Taika Waititi fan. Um IG eleven. I wonder who is... that is. <laughs> IG-11 is surprisingly making his return. What do we make of that storyline? Because I'm not keen on it, at least right now. Clarice, who may or may not be the fan I mean, of Taika Waititi that I referenced a few seconds ago. Obviously, I'm overjoyed. <laughs> I'm going to put that aside for a second. And I will say, in terms of like fan service, cameos, people returning, I will always much prefer them circling back on like creatures and droids and like physical puppets and exciting imaginative things rather than like fucking luke skywalker you know (laughs) so i if that's because i i feel like i would love there to be no cameos whatsoever but i'm being realistic about this and i think we can make a compromise here that there will be cameos but they will be cool obscure little weird alien peoples um Mm. which are fun and you know aren't feel less like they're constructed to sell lego sets you know because like Mm. no one's buying a disney plus subscription solely off the back of babu frick (laughs) so (laughs) it feels a little less cynical you know like i don't Mm. i don't really mind like ig 11 coming back and also just like come on he's fun i love him (laughs) Here's why, for right now, at least, I'm not too keen on it. Is it because you don't like the emotional payoff of them dying and they're bringing them back? Is that what it is? Yes, honey, you took the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. Well, I know, I knew exactly why you don't like it. It's you like, know me they're dead, so stay well. dead. Yeah, yeah, that is the thing, at least for right now. Here's why I could come round to it, though, and I think, Clarice, you might like this. With Mando, with Din Djarin... And I think part of the reason why they actually started this season the way they did, he's been indoctrinated. He has been drilled down into there being only one way, the way, all his life. He's been programmed, if you will, that way. IG-11 was programmed a certain way before he was reprogrammed for the better. If now Mando is on a search to find the right part so that he can access IG-11's memory and have him reprogrammed again, uh, to the way he was, are they going to link that reprogramming with potentially Mando's reprogramming in terms of accepting that his way is not the only way? Bo Katan and the Death Watch have already proven that there are other ways 
to still be Mandalorian, but also remove your helmet. Is that what they're trying to do with Mando? Do you think? I think so. I'd also like to counterpoint that he is a robot and robots can't die. So <laughs> he has yeah, to come back but from the see, dead. No, I, I see that. Like <laughs> season joking, one. But... Okay. Okay. But like that, that's, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about what they did with IG 11 in season one is that if you remember, then Jalen, he was a droid hater. He hated machines and they got him and they got us to really care about IG 11 and he became a fan favorite. And his sacrifice had meaning, it had weight, it had emotional power. And that was a really sort of big deal. I remember, you know, looking at Twitter after the episode and people were sort of, you know, expressing all the emotions because IG-11 was really cool and was done really well. If you bring, if you bring that back and it's, it's just a cheap thing because it's a fan favorite no, character that I you're bringing back and he has to do. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I think for the narrows, the thing about this, it's like he just wants information. <laughs> He's like, it's like he's got information on it, and we you're speculating about stuff that we don't even know what's going to come in the future, right? You're 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 complete, you're you're preemptively moaning about something that we don't even know is going to happen. Um, so I think it, wait to see what it is. Could be a situation where it's a quick thing to get the information I need and let them go. I mean, what I really like, one of my favorite things, what I did enjoy about that character is like reminding me of like um um uh, triple zero. Who is from the Doctor Afra? Do you, you know Doctor Afra, the yeah. series I never mentioned? But like, uh, what I like about that because he's like, find a like way to get Doctor yeah, Afra into this conversation. I love it. I love it. Like Triple Zero is great, but like, I like it because it's a character. But basically, it's still like a murder bot. All it wants to do murder, but like, basically, Doctor Afra changes the mechanism, so it's still got a personality of wanting to murder, but it literally is not allowed to because of like a thing that's been put in something's been taken out, so he has to do everything that Doctor Afra says. It's mm. so funny. To like K two S O. Yeah, like this basically just like yeah. just like that. And I think that'd be quite um I think if they brought it back in that way where it's like actually I just wanna I literally would love to kill you but I'm not allowed to or something. That'd be amazing. But um, here's the reason why I'm gonna gently push back on that they just need from information thing. Mando makes a point of telling I forget the names of the um the aliens who are trying to work on him. The but Anzellans. Thank you, the Anzellans. <laughs> Mando makes a point of saying <laughs> <laughs> Amateurs. <laughs> Mando makes a point of saying he's my friend. Like this isn't just an information thing. If they, if and when they bring IG Eleven back, I don't think it's just for an okay. information. Thing. I think it's well, going to be folded back let's into. Let's face that yeah. mountain when we come to it. <laughs> yeah, because like, can I make point one thing out? The point yes. of the episode was that his memory chip is fried. They need to get a new memory chip. So mm-hmm. the IG Eleven, if they, he ever comes back, will not be the same character. It will be a different personality. Hey, speaking of personalities, can Sorry. we talk about how much Grogu has like got so much more? Like, I love the evolution of that character mm-hmm. and the way he's like really knows himself a bit more. And it's a bit more like I think when we first met him, obviously he's younger, but like there was this kind of like um, apprehension, like uh, apprehensive, quite coy, wasn't quite sure of himself, and obviously been through this massive trauma of like of surviving like um, Order sixty six. Is it Order 66? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yes. Like, and like, yeah. um, and so now when the journey he's been on and also like the whole thing about him choosing like Din, like they're having a relationship. And so now he's just like, yeah, I'm a cheeky little lad. I'm like, I'm a little, mm-hmm. little like intergalactic jokes with my dad. terrible twos. Yes, I love it. Like <laughs> terrible 70s. <laughs> the way he tries to grab, um, what's his face? What's the little thing? The Al Zivans. And no. Zellens. That's the no, one. No, but what's the character? What's the character? 
Babu, Babu Fritz. Babu Fritz, yeah. Well, unconfirmed, unconfirmed Babu Fritz. Oh, it's the same voice though, right? Maybe Babu Fritz. Maybe, who knows? Yeah, but Charlie Henderson voiced all of them. Oh, okay, right, okay. So when he tries to grab it and it keeps going back, it's like, yes, I love that. The way he likes little using his like force powers to like spin a chair around and grab a little sweet. It's like these little moments feel like I, I, it's, this is what the beauty about the way that the, the, the non-human creatures, there's so much um, um, character development that they've put into it. So it's not just a puppet. Like it feels like an actual character. And that's why I really appreciate it. It takes everyone seriously, whether they're humans, robots, or, you know, creatures. I think that's great. Not creature. I mean, it's not a creature. That's really rude of me to say. Grogu is a fully functioning, uh, sentient being <laughs> who is very intelligent and all that. But like the non-human beings, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quickly before we go, Calm Weathers, uh, now a high magistrate, Grief, Grief Karga doing his thing. What do we make of the new surroundings, the upgraded surroundings of Navarro? Love it. Cool. The way he was like, stay away from my fucking school, man. This is a school. <laughs> and he was like, and he's like, those love like very like great robes. And it was like, pulling back. It's like, I'm still packing. <laughs> grief the governor, yeah. governor, but still grief the fucking bounty hunter will fucking... Mm-hmm. Fucking get yeah, you! It's always, <laughs> it's always good to see Carl Weathers on my screen, uh, aging very gracefully. Oh well, the thing I find interesting about Navarro is that what I really like that they're setting up here is that, like, the mission has ended, the adventure has technically ended, and both grief and in have the choice to settle down. What does he say? Live off the fat of the land. Yeah, like they don't have to go anywhere, but. These are two people who are now, like, basically trying to escape their own past and everything. It's like all the ghosts are coming back. And that's why I like the pirates, because it's like, Grief is like, he wants to be a respectable guy. He just wants to run this little town. But, like, that's not the person he used to be. And can he really, like, totally transform himself in that way? That feels like a very Star Warsian thing to do. Um... Mm. And also, I really need them to say whether it's Babu Frick or not. It's really annoying me. <laughs> I need confirmation. I did really like I'm the way sure. that Carl Weathers, like, grief is like when they're in the little, like, um, workshop and he's just like, they're going, he says this. <laughs> it's just like this stupid moment. Like, it's like they're looking for, like, the peering through. And that's what I love. It's just like these little quirky moments of just, like, meh. It's like, it takes itself seriously, but it also knows how ridiculous it actually is as well. That's what I like about my story. Yeah. yeah. Daddy's making, I loved that Din made a dad joke because he's a, he's a dad now, so he shouldn't <laughs> be making dad jokes. When he said, what did he say? Uh, that's a way to use, way to use your head or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, uh, very excited about this season of The Mandalorian. I feel like now that the table has been set, they'll be able to really flex in episode two and beyond and we will be reacting to said episodes uh as the weeks i'm waiting for episode three i always feel like episode three is the one where shit happens like that's the big (laughs) one it's like yo this is like no series like there's an episode three i feel like andor episode Mm. three was like insane like last of us like you know what i mean there's something big to Mm -hmm. come where they're like oh a little little Mm. moose boost but it's like pow main course Mm. yeah yeah, I think right now, if we were to sort of end the year right now, and who, who are the big winners? It would be Pedro Pascal 
The Last of Us and The Mandalorian on at the same time as a flex. And of course, Jonathan Majors, who's just been flexing and everything, literally and figuratively. Um, so, you know what's so, funny? Yeah. My, uh, my, John, John, like it's John, my boyfriend. He's like, I guess I'm, I guess I'm Jonathan Miners. And I was like, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no shame joke. in that, John. No shame. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Shout out, John. And on, and on that note, that is it for episode 100 of the Faith of Black podcast. One honey, baby. Thank you. Hey, hey. Hey. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for the love that we received over the last 100 episodes. Thank you for the listens. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for the shares. Uh, Thank you for been... the music. <laughs> Thank you for the music. It's been a wild ride. We're really enjoying it. Here's to 100, 200, 300, and a lot more besides. Uh, but for right now, thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast because it makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Beta Black Pod on Twitter. I am at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah and S. Flint on Instagram. And I just, before we get to you, Clarice, we can show your details and your like switch handles and all that. Um, a <laughs> shout out to Will Driver, who was like, our number yes. one fan, who said, <laughs> well, yes, we asked, we posted on Twitter and said, oh, what's been their favorite moments? Will, our number one fan, the only one who replied, <laughs> we appreciate you. <laughs> he said, is it too much to say everything? Genuinely, every episode has multiple laugh out loud moments. Not great for a packed commute. Loads of amazing interviews. If I had to select one, the live show after party was great. Fingers crossed for more. Keep up the amazing work. And Will, uh, your check is in the post. <laughs> <laughs> oh awesome. That was so lovely. Thank you, Will. Thank you. <laughs> I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter <laughs> or at Clarice Lockley on Instagram. Oh. Or India dot Stoker on PlayStation. Come play me in Fortnite. <laughs> Still, looking. <laughs> Still looking for teams. Or more importantly, Clarice, as we have been teeing up for the last couple of weeks, has entered TikTok stardom. Uh Clarice, what is your TikTok handle? Oh well it's not I'm not posting on my own account. I have one account, uh, one video on there and it's a fan cam of Salacious B Crumb. Um <laughs> But yeah, I'm posting TikToks on Flix UK, which is an outlet that I write all my like TV columns for. So uh, yeah, the the first one I made is so on brand. It's like kind of tragic. <laughs> tragic, actually. It's a work in progress, but I cannot wait to continue watching your TikTok journey. It's going to be something special. Um, oh my god <laughs> farewell film friends farewell tv friends farewell pod friends it's time to fade to black mm-hmm.